Welcome to Faith and Family, a radio outreach of Family Life Center International. And now from Greenville, South Carolina, here's your host, Steve Wood. Hello, this is Steve Wood, and welcome to Faith and Family. Thank you for joining us today. We're going to be continuing our look at the Gospel of St. Mark, being read during Masses this year. And what we're doing is an overview of some of the major themes in St. Mark. Why are we doing that? Well, we're encouraging you, after you hear the Sunday readings during Mass from the Gospel of St. Mark, we're asking families to repeat that process in the home, where mom and dad and maybe some of the older children take a turn by reading that Gospel reading in the home and bringing the Gospel home and having a deeper rootedness to the Word of God. So I'm going to continue where we left off in the Gospel of Mark, but let me give you a summary of what I think everything between the pages of these 16 chapters of the Gospel of St. Mark are all about. In other words, I'm going to give you the Gospel in a sentence. Okay, here it is. The Gospel of Mark is a two-part story about Jesus Christ the servant king. And almost everything in that seemingly simple sentence is loaded. Let's start with the Gospel of Mark is a two-part story. Probably more than any of the other Gospels, St. Mark is the easiest by far and the clearest to outline. If you want an outline of St. Mark, You go chapters 1 almost to the end of chapter 8, not quite, and then you go from the tail end there of chapter 8 to chapter 16. So it almost cuts right in half. Now remember, my gospel in a sentence of St. Mark was, the gospel of St. Mark is a two-part story about Jesus Christ, the servant king. And if you would just put a word to what you want to discover through those first eight chapters is the word king. St. Mark is trying to present the gospel of Jesus, the king, the king of Israel, who is also the king of the entire world. And then starting in chapter 8 and verse 27, towards the end of chapter 8, There's a very clear transition. It's almost like a a gate swinging on a hinge from part one to part two. And that second part of St. Mark is about Jesus, the king, but the king who serves, the king who is a servant. And of course, this seems in a certain sense outrageous because kings don't serve. The very polar opposites are servants and kings. And to really grasp this, there is a paragraph that comes right before the transition from part one to part two. And that paragraph begins in Mark 8.22. And in some ways, it's trying to show you what this gospel is trying to do. Let me just uh, recount it for you. They said some people brought to Jesus a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. So Jesus took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands upon him, he asked him, do you see anything? 
And he looked up and said, I see men, but they look like trees walking. Now, if you went in for your eye check and your doctor said, uh, what does it look like out there in the waiting room? Well, I see all the people, but they look like trees. He would probably give you a second eye check. In other words, the healing, the first healing that Jesus performed on him worked. He went from being blind to seeing men as trees walking, but that wasn't a complete healing. Then again, Jesus laid his hands upon his eyes and looked intently, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Now, what St. Mark is talking about is you and me and the disciples and just about everybody but Jesus himself. He knew exactly who he was. Well, what are you talking about? Well, right after this double healing, and I just need to inject this, do you think like Jesus ran out of a little healing steam or a little divine ability? I mean, Jesus could have taken his pinky and touched this man's eyes and he would have had perfect, absolutely perfect 2020 vision. But it was on purpose. This was done twice and it's on purpose. It comes right before this big shift in the gospel of Mark. It says right after this, Jesus went on with his disciples and then he said, who do men say that I am? And they said, John the Baptist, Elijah, and, and then Jesus pressed them. And said, who do you say that I am? And crucial to our identity as Christians is our confession of Jesus and an accurate picture of him. Is our picture of Jesus like as a tree walking, or do we see clearly? And St. Peter to his credit, answered, you are the Christ. Now, to us, Christ is kind of like a name, like Jesus. You can say, I believe in Christ, or I believe in Jesus. But really, Christ is a title. Uh, it could be said, Jesus Christ, or Jesus the Messiah, or Jesus the King, because the Jewish Messiah was going to be a son, a descendant of the King David, who would be king, yes, of Israel, but also destined to be king of the entire world. And so Peter said, you are the Christ. You are the king of Israel, so to speak. You are the son of David that we've been waiting 10 centuries for. And then Jesus moves on to part B of what this whole gospel of Mark is about. Remember, it's a servant king. So Peter got the first part, great, but the second part, he didn't get so great because Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected and killed. And Peter said, oh, no, 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 no. You got this one wrong. You're the Messiah. You're the King. And Jesus was saying, yes, I am the Messiah King, but my reign is going to be ushered in through my sacrifice as a servant redeemer. And Jesus had to turn around and rebuke Peter, who Peter had just gotten the first part right. See, remember that two-stage healing? Well, this is in a certain sense a two-stage confession. Peter got it right. Jesus was the Messiah. 
Peter got it right. Jesus was the great king of Israel who would rule the world. But what he couldn't see is that this king would come in the most unassuming way and proceed to a death on the cross. And really, it's these two things which the Gospel of Mark is trying to get across to us today. Now, I've been an evangelical Protestant for, hmm, how long was it? A little over two decades, I guess, and a little over two decades as a Catholic. So I got a little perspective on both being a Protestant, a little perspective on being a Catholic, and it's my observation, in fact, it was an observation before I even became a Catholic, that part two of Mark's gospel, the part where Jesus is that servant who goes to the cross and it reveals on his suffering and death his great love for us and his mercy, which draws us to him. (laughs) This is probably very presumptuous, but if I would give a grade to Catholics on part B of Mark, I would dare say an A+. I really do believe the Catholic faith, and not just you know, in the catechism, that's important, but in the lives of Catholic believers, I really do see that deep understanding of Jesus as the suffering servant, of Jesus on the cross, Jesus and his suffering. I mean, you can't go through Holy Week as a Catholic without sensing there's a utterly profound grasp and understanding of this. Okay, now you're probably guessing what I'm going to do next. Let's talk about part one of St. Mark, and let's talk about how well do Catholics today in the modern world, and I will actually include many, if not most Protestants too, how well do they understand the notion of Jesus's kingship? I'll be charitable and say I would give us um, maybe a C minus, but it's probably more accurate to say D. In other words, we also need a second touch on our eyes. We do see uh, part two really well, which Peter didn't see, but surprisingly, it's kind of reversed, but part one, I don't think we do see very well. I've mentioned this before on the radio, but it's one of those things that so struck me so deeply because the idea of Christ as king and being the king of the kingdom of God struck me when a couple of British comedians asked some folks in the United States, well, what's off limits for comedians in the United States? They said, we know what's off limits here in Great Britain. It's the royal family. You don't poke fun. You don't make jokes. You don't go on late night comedy and start poking jokes at the royal family. That's off limits. So I said, what is off limits in the United States? And do you know what they were advised? Mickey Mouse and the Magic Kingdom. No joke. This is what they said. Don't make jokes about Mickey Mouse. You see, what's so sad about that in a way is that Any good teacher knows that you want to teach a new concept. Well, 
you take something that your students already know, and then you use that to lead your students to an understanding of what is yet unknown. So in order to really lead people to understand Christ's kingship, you really want the idea of just earthly kingship as kind of your foundation, what is known, so that you can then go to a higher and deeper and more difficult understanding of Christ's kingship. But as you know, in the modern world, modern democracies and such, and particularly United States, we're void of the idea of hierarchy and kingship. So it's very, very difficult to get a grasp on the idea of Christ is king. And that's why I think that we need that second touch today, just like St. Peter did. Uh, he needed it for part two. I think we really have that. Uh, Christ is the great servant who, who redeems us through his suffering and cross, but his kingship, see, he's the king who serves. And it's these two things that make up the gospel. Now, last time I asked a very important question that frequently doesn't get a full and accurate answer in both Protestant and Catholic circles. What exactly does the word gospel mean? Like, well, we all know what the gospel means. Well, what does it specifically mean? For instance, Mark 1.1 starts off with the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, any good author doesn't try to hide what he's going to try to do in whatever he's writing. If it's a book, it's usually the foreword or very early on in the book. The author will disclose, even through the title, even through the flapjack of what he's trying to get across. So Mark says, this is the beginning of the gospel. What does gospel mean? And I showed you last time that the word gospel, which is also directly related to, in the Greek, uh, directly related to the word that we have for evangelism. In Greek, actually, the word gospel looks more like evangelism than it does gospel. Uh, it's euangelion, and it's the good news. And in the Greek Old Testament, there's a very specific place where we get the definition of a gospel, and that's from Isaiah 52, 7. It says, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good tidings, the evangelizer bringing the gospel, who publishes peace, who brings good tidings of good news, who declares the gospel, and who says to Zion, to Israel, your God reigns. In other words, the gospel is an announcement that the Messiah long awaited and hoped for by the Jewish people. He reigns. He's a king. But his kingship isn't limited to Israel. It's for the whole world. And that's why we find in Mark's gospel, we're still in the first chapter, it says that Jesus came into Galilee. This is the very beginning of his preaching, preaching the gospel of God the gospel of God. Now, we usually fill in the blank of whatever we may think the gospel's a book or the gospel's a, a quickie uh, outline for how one gets saved or something like that. But Jesus came preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Something about the, there, 
about the gospel and the kingdom of God go together. And then he says, believe in the gospel after he announces the kingdom's at hand. You see, the gospel is an announcement of the great king. That's what the first half of the gospel of Mark is about. Second half, the king who surprisingly serves and goes to the cross. But to really get the irony here and the backdrop to the whole story of the gospel, you can't close your eyes to the fact that he's the great king. You know, in the Roman Empire, remember St. Mark, his gospel was basically a summary of St. Peter's preaching, and St. Peter ended up preaching the gospel in Rome. And in Rome, in the Roman Empire, after a great military victory or after uh, a new Caesar took the throne, the formal royal kingly announcement was made. And you know what the word for that announcement was? gospel, euangelion. Now, here's Peter going around Rome proclaiming that Jesus is the Son of God, a royal announcement. Yes, this would have turned heads. It definitely turned heads. And you think, well, this is just pulling something out of the hat. No. Uh, St. Paul, a lot of people think St. Paul the primary emphasis of his gospel was on personal salvation. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm a very, very, very strong believer in personal salvation. But St. Paul said, I am eager, Romans 1.15, to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God. Okay, that's what he says in chapter 1. And then in Romans 10, 15, he says, As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach euangelion, the gospel. Now, Romans 10, 15, St. Paul begins with, As it is written. Where is that written? That's written in Isaiah 52, 7. Your God reigns. The emphasis on Paul's gospel in the empire and the heart of the empire in Rome, I'm eager to get there and preach you the gospel that there's a king, Jesus, the Messiah of the Jews, is king of this empire and all empires and all nations. Now, let's go back to St. Mark. And let's take a look at what I would call uh, what appears to be a harmless parable in Mark chapter 4. I'm going to turn there. If you're not driving, you can turn there too. It's a, a parable about the mustard seed. And the parable begins with, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? And Jesus went on to talk about a very tiny seed, a tiny beginning, which after it's sown in the ground, it grows up and becomes this huge shrub or tree or whatever it is. In other words, very small beginnings, very large endings, and it puts forth large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. Now you think, what is this? Kind of like a... Um, a warm and fuzzy devotional passage for Audubon Society, bird watchers or something like that? I mean, what's the deal with birds finding a home in branches of a large tree? But remember, 
he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? And in this chapter of Mark 4 of kingdom parables, Jesus says for you through the parables, it's for you to know the secrets of the kingdom. Those outside, they're not going to get it. So when Jesus went around teaching about this little mustard seed growing into this big tree or shrub and all the birds of the air finding a nest in its branches, it probably didn't sound like much to the people who heard it. And when Peter went around Rome and started teaching, he said, well, what does this mean? It's, it's code. Okay, The code to understand this comes straight out of a very important section of the Old Testament, specifically uh, the prophet Daniel. And although it's in several places in Daniel, uh, I'll try to get to the heart of it. In chapter 4 of Daniel, King Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar was what was called a king of kings. In Daniel, there is going to be a progression of four worldwide empires, starting with Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar, followed by Medo-Persia, followed by Greece with Alexander the Great, and then finally the Roman Empire. Now, Mark was being written during this fourth kingdom, okay? And a king of kings, what would happen, either through conquest or through covenant treaty, a kingdom would come under the authority of the king of kings. And particularly if they um, didn't resist and had to be conquered and basically scattered to the winds, if they voluntarily came under his authority, the kingdom could stay intact. The king would remain in office. He wouldn't be extinguished, but that his authority would ultimately be accountable to the king of kings. So you had the king of kings over an empire, and in that empire, you would have various kings over various nations. That's what Babylon was all about. That's what Nebuchadnezzar is all about. That's what Daniel 4 is all about. But Nebuchadnezzar had a dream that uh, he was very concerned about, didn't know what was going on. And it starts like this. He says, the tree, and the tree represents his kingdom, the tree grew and became strong and its top reached to heaven. And it was visible from the end of the whole earth. This is a worldwide kingdom, the first of four. Its leaves were fair and its fruit abundant. And in it was food for all. The beast of the field found shade under it and the birds of the air dwelt in its branches. Ah, you see, and this is actually, you can find this in Ezekiel, you can find this through Daniel. The idea a kingdom is represented by a great tree. Its branches would be the various nations that are connected to that empire under the authority of the king of kings. And so you have the bird. So this was not some little kind of environmental parable that Jesus was talking about. This was an earth-shaking declaration in code because you could lose your life for saying something like this in the Roman Empire, particularly in the capital of it. So uh, what would happen, it says that Daniel uh, warned the king that unless he acknowledged the kingdom 
of God, he would lose his mind. And he would be wet with dew, and he would be living with the beast of the earth, and a beast mind would be given to him until seven times pass over him. In other words, if the king refused to acknowledge, if the king of kings, Nebuchadnezzar, refused to acknowledge the kingship of God over him, so in other words, there's the king of the king of kings, he would lose his mind. He would get a beast mind. Let me just give you a tip for the modern world. You lose sight of the kingship of Christ, you lose your reason. And sure enough, what happened is that the King Nebuchadnezzar was having a proud day, and he said in his boast a little later in chapter 4, is not this Babylon which I have built with my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty, and boom, he lost his mind, and he left, and he went and lived with the beast of the field, eating grass like a wild ox. This is right out of the Bible, by the way. And until you have learned, O king, that the Most High rules over the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he will. And after his time of punishment was done, this is what it says in Daniel 4. At the end of days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. You wonder why the world seems to be going crazy? This is at its root. It has lost sight of the kingship of Jesus Christ over the nations of the world. We're boasting of our own might, our own power, our own majesty, and no. So Nebuchadnezzar blessed the Most High and honored him. He said, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion. Dominion is the extension of the reign of a king and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. And he says he does everything according to his will, and among the inhabitants of the earth, none can stay his hand, and my reason return to me. Really what we need to do in the modern world, and especially right here in the United States, saying we believe in or pledge one nation under God, that's a good start, but you know, what God is that? a generic God, the Hindu God, the Muslim God, the Christian God. You know, this nation needs a confession that Jesus Christ is Lord, not only by individuals, but by our rulers, by our constitution, by all peoples of the modern world. You've been listening to episode 62 of Faith and Family. Visit us on the web at dads.org. Faith and Family is a radio outreach of Family Life Center International. Visit us online at familylifecenter.net. To order a CD copy of today's broadcast, order online at www.familylifecenter.net.